Hello and welcome to Sanford Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Jeffrey Freddy. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me here, Darko. Great. Please, just go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. I think most people who know me would know me either from the podcast that I have with Douglas Squirrel. We have a podcast called Troubleshooting Agile, and we're co-authors of a book called Agile Conversations. People who are a bit older and been in the industry longer might know me from my work on cruise control, which was one of the early open source continuous integration tools. And also I've been the co-organizer of continuous integration and testing conference, KitCon. So I think those are the things that people would most know me for. Great. And before we move to the topics that are interesting to you right now and what you're working on right now, maybe we can, as you already did, take a step back and maybe talk a little bit about KitCon and potentially even before that, what led you to working on cruise control? Sure. So I started my career in developer tools at Borland back in the 90s. And I also opened a startup in the dot-com era, started in 99, called Open Avenue. And Open Avenue, you could think of as basically GitHub, but before Git existed. So we used a different backend, but it was web-based version control with developer tools behind it. And we were really excited about what it meant to be able to have a whole server farm behind supporting development teams when they would contribute a check in their code. And our approach was also sort of embedding the open source model. So we had the idea of using the open source development model internally within companies. That company, unfortunately, died kind of a dot-com death when the dot-com bubble burst. And so in 2001, when the company folded, I went to go look for another role. I was really excited about two things at that time. And one was test-driven development, and the other one was continuous integration and the idea of having, when you commit code, getting automated feedback. You know, I thought that was just so powerful to have a server farm that could go and run all the tests for me and let me very quickly know what I had done. So I actually looked for a role where I could build that kind of system at a company. And I actually found a couple of companies interested in that. And I went to one of them. And then before I started building the system, though, I looked around to see if there was already an open source project that I could leverage. And that's when I found Cruise Control. So this is 2001. And I became an active contributor and later a, a committer there. And that's pretty much directly what led to my working on the KitCon conference that was founded by myself and PJ, PJ being the originator of the Cruise Control project, one of the founders of the project. When it was coming up to the five-year anniversary of Cruise Control, and you remember this is the very, very early days of automated CI, and we were all very much kind of figuring out how to make the most of this kind of tooling, this kind of approach. And he said, he approached me to say, you know, we'd be interested in starting a conference on this. And we invite everyone else who was involved in CI tooling at the time. And so we did that. We invited a bunch of people who were leading other open source projects at the time, largely open source, but there was also some commercial people there. So people who were using maybe cruisecontrol.net, uh, damage control, which very few of your listeners will have heard unless they're you know old like I am. We also invited people from a company called Urban Code that made one of the first commercial tools called Anthill. And they had a professional version, Anthill Pro. So we invited them. And so that was really, it started as kind of like an inside baseball. Who were the really early people involved in continuous integration and the related field of testing. So we also invited people who were kind of skeptics of this automated approach. And so we invited, for example, James Shore, 
who people might know from his Art of Agile book or his videos on how to do unit testing. He'd written a, a blog called Why I Hate Cruise Control. <laughs> we thought that was too good of an opportunity to pass up, so we invited him. And I say invited because the format of the conference was very different than a traditional conference. My view is that conferences really should be for conferring. They should be for talking with your colleagues. But I think a lot of conferences, you kind of show up and it's a bunch of talking heads in a room, and there's very limited time to actually interact with people. So sometimes people say like the best conversations, the best part of a conference might be the hallway conversations. So what PJ had the idea, he said, well, like likely to the conference in what's called an open space style, also known as an unconference. And this is something he had had firsthand experience with. Bruce Eckel and Martin Fowler had run a series of conferences that in open space format. I think it was the Enterprise Architecture Summit, something like that. And PJ had gone to one of these and was just blown away by the open space format. And for people who don't know what that means, open space format is there's not a fixed agenda ahead of time. The people who attend at the conference create the agenda for what they want to discuss. And this makes just a tremendous difference in the dynamics of the conference. So you'll have people proposing topics, you'll have people voting on them. And what happens is you know that the topics being discussed in the room are ones that people are interested in. And it's a great way for people to find each other, find people with common interests, common concerns, common problems they're trying to work through. Or, you know, someone may have come in with a problem. Someone else says, well, I'll attend that because we've solved it and we'll talk about it. And so it's a fantastic way of connecting people in the community. And I think that's one of the things I've been most excited with about the KitCon conference, which we've continued since 2006. We've had it in multiple continents. We've had it in U.S., Europe and Asia. It's really developed communities of people. Introduce people, often it will come to a city and people will meet each other <laughs> in that city who didn't know each other ahead of time because they are really excited to find there's other people with common interests, especially in this area of how do we make good software and how do we make good products. That conference has been very influential for me in my career. This topic of how do we become effective at product development has been, you know, that some I've been interested in my entire career. And I think KitCon has actually contributed quite a lot over the years to that conversation. We've just released the CICD for MonoRepos ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the MonoRepo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a MonoRepo first CICD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built tested, and deployed from a monorepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo dash CICD. I can maybe contribute to this. So recently, KitCon was in virtual format and is still running. I had the pleasure to attend a couple of years ago, and I was blown away by the format and for the people to, you know, just maybe visualize. So Jeffrey and PJ make all the attendees sit in a circle, you know, introduce yourself. There is a whiteboard. You write down on sticky notes, you know, what are the topics? And then there are people who group them together and uh, agenda for the next day is formed. It is how it looked while it was, you know, in a physical world. <laughs> 
and it is amazing format. One thing that you mentioned about this format and also about communication and feedback and all that is that you also had experience implementing something in a similar format within companies. Can you maybe briefly talk also about that? Absolutely. I've done this several times, particularly in the companies I've been part of, introduced the open space format as a way for us to have internal conferences. And we've done this in the technology group, but we've also done it in the whole company. So we had a format where we'd have, say, an annual offsite, and we'd have the whole company there. So sales, marketing, product teams, developers, everyone. And it really was a fantastic way for people to learn about the concerns that people had and find out where they had shared concerns. I think very often in companies, it's very easy to fall into silos, to have kind of the people you are working with on your team and in your function, and to not really be connected to understanding what the shared problems are across the company. And bringing this format internally, it has the same community building aspect that I've seen in the external one in the KitCon conference. So we suddenly have maybe people in support and people in development talking to each other and the developers learning about something that the support people know or have experience with or problems and that opening up a new communication channel that didn't exist before, much for the benefit of all parties. <laughs> so uh, this can result in you know changes to the product that the support people know about that developers didn't realize they could do that might benefit clients, but also might just benefit the support people. So many things come with this. Also alignment between, you know, sales and development, you know, even actually within development organizations themselves. And if you have more than two teams or even more than one team, I can see it can be very easy for technology teams to grow apart from one another when they're not working together day to day. And so being able to have this time to connect and to find common problems and areas of interest can be a really uh, fantastic result with benefits that last well beyond just the offsite event itself. I have to confess that we also stole this format for our internal purposes. Although we are a team, just about 30 people, we have like retreats and in the past they were you know live somewhere. But now we also use this in this for last actually two years now, virtual format where we would group people around topics that are just, you know, proposed by the people. And it is definitely a very powerful tool for that particular purpose. So moving from here, there are a couple of things that we touched upon that you are really interested in. One of the things being end-to-end -end CI and CD. Can you maybe elaborate on that, how you have seen that work in practice or made that work in practice and yeah, introduce us to the idea? Sure. So end-to-end -end continuous integration was a term we kind of came up at KitCon, you know, probably around 2007, 2008. So what would happen is people have been doing continuous integration for a few years now. And the kind of scope of what people brought into their CI tools had grown. So originally, it might be just compiling the code and then compiling and unit testing, and then adding functional tests and adding code coverage tools and adding static analysis and kind of just extending more and more of all the kind of checks that you might want done, bringing that in. And people were asking, well, how far can we go with this? What would be the limit? And some people began experimenting with, well, actually, we will deploy from our CI system out to production. 
And now, of course, today, the idea of automated deployment from your build tool is, is not uncommon. You know, people kind of expect that from CI. But that was a new thing back at that time. It was kind of being pioneered. And I think there's a, somewhat of a connection between this end-to-end continuous integration and DevOps. In fact, Patrick Dubois attended KitCon <laughs> the year before he started the DevOps Days uh, series of conferences. And I know that he met people at KitCon Europe who then attended the first DevOps Days because people were kind of trying to solve similar problems. You know, how do we get everything automated and how do we have everything in the system where we have the reproducibility and also the visibility? So I think most people would look at this as something more than continuous integration today. But to me, I still think end-to-end CI is still relevant. For me, a real touch point might be the work done at IMView. And you can find this written up. Timothy Fitz wrote a blog post called Doing the Impossible 50 Times a Day, where they talked about how they went from a commit to having something running in production and not just running, but also being monitored. So they would do a partial deployment and then monitor the business metrics, the health of the cluster. And if after being deployed, the metrics looked good on that cluster, they would then continue the deployment out to the full system. But if things didn't look good, they would stop the rollout so they could investigate to figure out what went wrong. And that I thought was a really great idea. And I think beyond even what most people do today, I think that a lot of times people have lost this idea of actually having monitoring tied in as part of your deployment pipeline. And even that term, you know, the deployment pipeline is one that has developed over time now with the idea that we are going to be promoting things from our sort of development build into a test environment, into production. To me, that's been a long-term touch point. How do we have visibility from commit all the way through to production and actually what's happening in production? And this idea of getting visibility of the business impacts of the work we're doing tied back to the commits we're making. For me, that's what I'm talking about with end-to-end. To push metrics to be a first-class citizen, as your code is and as your infrastructure is, that came to me first through this, I would say, for me, very recent, in the last couple of years, movement of like splitting things into microservices. Mm-hmm. And there, as you have many small individual components that are running, some things become easier and there is a whole you know, set of things that become harder. Yes. And having metrics that really follow the whole life cycle of that individual microservice is very important. It also introduces a possibility of various other kinds of deployments and you can partially test something out uh, in part of infrastructure, which is available in other tools also. Is it something that would relate to this, what you were describing? I think there's a similarity. I think what happens with microservices is that it's more obvious the benefit of having this. I don't think what I'm saying relies on microservices. I think it's something you can do with monoliths, no problem. (laughs) I think one thing that happens with monoliths is that maybe it's more obvious for people to go look at the business metrics and not just technical metrics. I think microservices makes it more obvious to people the benefit of having metrics, but I think that tends to be a focus very often on the technical metrics because people are first saying, is this working? Now that's good. It's nothing wrong with that. It just, I think that a lot of times people with microservices can lose track of, you know, you should be monitoring the business side as well. To me, the idea of bringing the business metrics into it is really important. And again, I'm going to reference Patrick Tabah. He wrote an article, something about his view of like, what is DevOps? 
I think he was using the CAMS model, culture automation metrics. And I don't remember the other one now. When he was describing that, he had this idea that he put forward about having as DevOps matures, you know, this idea of bringing business metrics back to the business from production as a key goal. I have been and remain excited about that. I think there's also the idea, I was rereading recently Steve Yegi's classic rant about platforms. This is that he was saying the one thing that Amazon did better than Google was having a platform because they required everyone to interact, all the teams to interact through APIs. As he said, at the limit, your monitoring becomes your testing. <laughs> when you have really developed the monitoring you want in production, that's also how you know what's going wrong. I really like that idea. So for me, this idea of my monitoring is how I will know that something's working in production is as important or more important than the tests that we do in development. I think this is, again, this is another blind spot that people have developed as they've developed good technical practices of making sure their code is tested. You can still end up with the problem that the developers are only caring that it works in development. <laughs> They're not always thinking about, well, how will we know it's working in production? This, I think, is one of the ideas that DevOps is supposed to address. And DevOps, again, is not about having a DevOps team or a DevOps engineer. It's about bringing together the concerns of development and operations, you know, having the concerns of operations come upstream into development. So the developers are working with a production mindset from the beginning. And I think if you do that, then it leads very naturally to the idea of a rich set of monitoring and metrics, which ends up actually improving the development sort of debugging process. And I think that's what you're describing with the microservice approach. Though again, it's not limited to microservices. This could be and should be happening with all software in my view. We've just released the CICD for MonoRepos ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the MonoRepo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a MonoRepo first CICD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a MonoRepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo CICD. From this long and rich career you have behind you, something that was a major topic of discussion a couple of years ago, at least in the circles that I was following, is that you build it, you run it. Yes. And talking with customers these days, it seems that this has become the norm, at least for the teams that are, you know, very technically mature and uh, embraced, you know, CI, CD, and DevOps fully. Which means about 15% of companies. <laughs> but it's normal for them. <laughs> Yes, luckily they are our customers. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that we have a privilege of working with such great teams. You actually answered my question. I wanted to ask like a progression of that, you know, you build it, you run it, as you have witnessed over the years. Obviously it reached 15%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm kind of spitballing it. I'm using something called the technology adoption lifecycle, which I first learned from the book Crossing the Chasm, but it predates that. And the technology adoption lifecycle divides the population of people in any market into different groups. So there's the innovators, the people who invent new processes, new tools, new technologies. Then you have the early adopters. And these are people who are always seeking to be better. They're getting the most out of the different practices and staying, adopting these things to really move ahead. I think after that, in the technology adoption lifecycle, you get what's called the early majority 
then the late majority, and then the laggards. So that's the rest of the 85%. The early majority tend to be trend followers. They will pick up something when everyone else is doing it, but they don't tend to adopt practices until that point. So when we have these kind of technical best practices, they tend to get proliferated among that sort of early adopter 15% first, and then gradually make their way out into the majority that happens gradually, if at all. <laughs> and if it does move out, it's very often in a modified, a different form. To give it a comparison, I think you look at the spread of Agile since 2001. At the time the Agile Manifesto was written, the dominant Agile methodology was extreme programming. And so I think that was something that was picked up by the early adopters. I think in about the mid-2000s, Agile crossed the chasm into the early majority. And when it did, it came through as Scrum. And so it moved from a focus on technical practices to focuses more on project management. And now as we're getting to the late majority, this is where you see the rise of these sort of things like SAFE, you know, the scaled agile framework, where they're saying, like, this is the standard way to approach this. And there's a lot of emphasis then on more heavily on process and doing what's standard as opposed to a focus on results <laughs> and technical practices that spread of Agile, how different segments of the market have picked up Agile in a different way and basically means something different. I think that's true in a microcosm for all the different sub pieces. So you build it, you run it, starts off among the early adopters as teams that are building software and then, you know, say product aligned teams that are out there and actually running what they've built. But as it moves into the majority, I think we'll see that kind of come to mean something slightly different. So, you know, probably have, yeah, we build it, you run it, you know, we have our own ops people <laughs> that run it for us <laughs> and let us know if there's a problem, that kind of thing. That's my prediction of how that gets rolled out just from my experience and seeing how different tools have been adopted and different processes have been adopted over time. Unfortunately, you're probably right. <laughs> it is going to go that direction. Do you see that continuous integration, continuous delivery, DevOps, that it is adopted by roughly 15% of the companies and you would still say that it's in the early adopters category? I think this has moved beyond it. I think continuous integration and DevOps have both moved well past the early adopter phase, but it means something different. You know, continuous integration, when it started, if you go read the, you know, Martin Fowler article, it was about something that people did. This is, I mentioned James Shore earlier, his Why I Hate Cruise Control was focusing on this, that originally continuous integration meant we check in frequently. <laughs> it's something, he wrote a blog post called How to Do Continuous Integration with a Rubber Chicken. And the idea was that, you know, if you were working with a pair and you wanted to commit your code, you needed to get the rubber chicken, which was like the check-in token. And then you would integrate your code and run the tests and make sure it was working as part of your commit process. And then you would give up the rubber chicken to someone else. It was a manual process. And it was really about developers taking responsibility, make sure everything was fully integrated all the time. The tools like cruise control helped in the sense that it allowed people to push longer running things off to servers. It became like a proof point that yes, we know this is running somewhere other than my machine. So I would still, when I was doing early days of CI, I would still do all the integration and testing locally. And then the CI system was like a proof point that yes, in fact, it worked. And also would run our long running tests. We might have a nightly build for things that took many hours of tests. 
that we couldn't run locally. And so it provided shared facts about the state of the code base. I think in a lot of how it's been adopted by the mainstream, CI is about tools, not about technical practices. It's not about developers committing frequently. And a great example of this, I think, is feature branches. Feature branches are not continuous integration. Feature branches are deferred integration. But I think that feature branches is one common way that quote unquote CI has been adopted, but it's not CI. You're deferring the integration by having a feature branch. And that's a good example, I think, of how the meaning and the practices change as they move from the early adopters to the mainstream. Similarly with, with DevOps, you know, DevOps was about developers and operations people working closely throughout the life cycle of a project. And then it became like people are now hiring DevOps engineers. They, you know, we have developers and then we have DevOps engineers. What the hell is a DevOps engineer? That doesn't make sense, but that's what happens. So I think that's just reality. Alistair Coburn quoted something, put something on Twitter a couple of years ago. There was a lot of talk about Agile being dead and he was rejecting that. I think he's right. Agile is not dead. There's still millions of knowledge workers out there that Agile way of working haven't reached them. It's going to. <laughs> now, I think what happens is longtime Agile people look at how things get transformed and they think, oh, that's not what we had in mind. That's not what we meant. But Alistair said, look, you have a choice. When you have an idea, one of two things will happen. It will be ignored or it'll be misunderstood. <laughs> Those are your options. So agile being misunderstood is not a sign of failure. It's a sign of success because the alternative is it dies a death in a lonely, dark corner. So the fact that these things are happening, they're not happening the way we would have chosen as early adopters. You know, we think there are better ways to apply them, but they're still happening. They're still making incremental improvement in the larger world. And they still provide openings for valuable conversations with people about, you know, hey, there's other ways to do things and we can improve over time. And certainly over my career, the transformation of how software is done has been remarkable. I would say we haven't achieved all the promises of Agile. There's still this large gap between the 15% early adopters of people who are really embracing all the practices, getting the best results. I think that shows up in say, like the state of DevOps research that IT Revolution has published. There's actually an expanding gap between the best companies and the normal companies. I think that's always true. But still, I think if you step back and look objectively, at the time I was working in the 90s, it was normal to have development projects that were, you know, 18 months, two years, three years. And that projects might fail. They might get canceled after two or three years of development. Now, if you talk to people about, yep, we're going to have our first release 18 months from now, they would be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, a long release is something that takes six months. That's just an amazing change from where we were at the start of my career. So that's kind of my gloss on the impact of how things change as they get distributed. But there's still value in the modified versions becoming more popular. Yeah, exactly. And something that I could potentially add to that. So I think that the majority of people who are practicing continuous integration actually are pretty far away from that idea that we should be, you know, integrating continuously. But something else, which is great on the other side, and let me explain that through an example. So just two weeks ago, we had a conversation with a customer and their pipeline is actually great. Let me explain what I mean by that. So they get the feedback on all of their tests in under eight minutes. And that's their goal. They have like 55 jobs running in parallel 
executing their test in, in parallel, and they have a team of 60 engineers. They want to grow to a team of 100 engineers by the end of the year. And one of their concerns is they want to maintain that feedback loop of under eight minutes that they set and maintain the speed of deployment. How many times do they deploy per day? And they can deploy 10 plus times per day, which is amazing. So in a way, you could say that continuous integration is happening, maybe in a bit different form, and it's not the main focus because the main focus is to deploy many times per day and have things shipped. However, feature branches that can diverge from you know main master are reality. And vast majority of people from what we are seeing are using feature branches to you know, <laughs> defer the integration. <laughs> yes. But it's still good. There are still many benefits to it. Yeah, I agree. I don't knock the progress. You know, It'd be easy to mock them and say, oh, they sound like they're almost to where IMView was 13 years ago, <laughs> which where they were deploying to production from commits 50 times a day with a team that was, I think, around 100 people. So they're approaching that. But that's still, that's huge progress. And so I think it's great that that kind of practice is becoming mainstream. So yeah, I think what I hear you describing is a success story. Yeah, I also think so. Majority of people are actually struggling to get there and to maintain that position. So yeah. Yeah, I would make one bridge from this work on CI to my more recent work on conversations, because I think that's how my career has evolved from a real focus on tooling and process to focus on conversation and collaboration. And the reason is because in my experience at KitCon for over a decade was that I kept finding frustrated technologists who wanted to be doing better and were frustrated that our companies weren't adopting these practices, that they weren't as good as they could be. And what I realized over time was that the limiting factor of a company to improve was the quality of conversations they were having. And that's where I've put my focus in this, the book, Agile Conversations. It's a book not limited to Agile. It's really for any time you have humans collaborating. <laughs> the question is, how do we have productive conversations, including productive conflict? And there's a real skills about making that happen. And these are learnable skills. And so my view is if you're looking at a team and you're feeling that frustration, why aren't we better? The way forward isn't to say, well, you know, let's go and research more technology. <laughs> let's go research more tools. You know, go ahead and figure out how to have productive conversations first. Once you unlock that productive collaboration, then you'll find your work into technical process improvement, tooling improvement will happen much faster. To me, there is definitely a link between these things. And they think they come from a similar philosophy, which is generating shared facts, generating a shared understanding. All of that work you described about the pipeline and about CI for decades has been the fact that the system is generating shared facts that we can use to help our discussions, as opposed to if you don't have a system like this, you know, you have the sort of what works on my machine, but doesn't work for me, kind of, you know, I think it's broken, I think it's fine, uh, lack of shared facts. Developing shared facts, the more broadly we do it through the system, you know, in terms of these tests that are run, the metrics we have, the monitoring production, all of these shared facts make our conversations and collaboration more effective, although it can still be undermined if we lack the skills for productive collaboration. I would want to ask for uh, maybe advice in that area. Let me give an example. So a bit over 10 years ago, our company was a handful of engineers. And then more engineers came by the nature of our situation, but the majority of those engineers were very young. 
And I know that there was a period in history when a topic was on soft skills, you know, and helping engineers who are just out of college, you know, and not to insult anyone, but just by the nature of the technology and being into programming and computers and so on, us tech people are maybe not at the highest level of communication and, you know, <laughs> all that. I hope you and listeners get the idea where I'm getting to. As we expanded into a company that has different, you know, sales and marketing and, you know, management and those, yes, there are other people who might be more natural and better in communicating and conversations and all that. Over time, that just disappeared as a main topic. We got better at it, but it is something that has to be, you know, thought and it's part of the culture and the bigger the organization is, the harder it is to move the ship in that direction and educate all the people and so on. So I, and I think many of listeners would be interested probably to hear some advices in that area, how to level up that level of communication and especially what you mentioned, constructive conflict that would actually change things usually in a better way. Our intention with the book is to have very practical, hands-on exercises that you can do. And I think that's the main advice I have is to first make the point of productive conflict, the explicit goal. And what do you mean by productive conflict? Which what we're saying here is the value of a team comes from the diversity of opinions and diversity of knowledge. And as we want to have a group of people where we don't agree at the start, because if we did all agree, we're really not getting the benefits of a team. Everyone agrees to this in theory, but they don't know how to navigate it in practice. And that's where the skills come in. So once you've agreed, and everyone typically does agree that you want the value of diversity, then you say, well, if we're going to get the value, we also need to work on the skills. And I mean work, like have practice sessions with pen and paper to do conversation analysis. And in the book, we introduce a framework called the four R's, which is you have a conversation that you record, you reflect on the conversation in a structured way, you revise your conversation, and then you role play it. So you get practice thinking in a different way, constructing conversations differently and speaking. And by developing this through practice, you start to develop different habits of thought and communication. And that can make a tremendous difference. And this is something that I've experienced. And this is what was behind the book was having done this at the company I was at. And we actually went through and did sessions for the whole company. We did exercises with the whole company and offsite. We also had small group sessions for everyone in the company so that everyone got practice. And the important thing I hear was two things. One is establishing it as an espoused norm and value at the company level. And the second was following that up with, you know, hands-on practice time. I think those two things together were what led to a really dramatic change in culture um, to um, much better collaboration. I heard about the book, I think at the last sitcom, to be honest, I haven't read it. Now I want to read it. (laughs) Hope some of our listeners also want to. So at this point, I wanted to check. You mentioned the podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar. What are the topics? Is it continuation of a conversation that you started in a book and expansion on that? Or We started the podcast while writing the book. And because our goal, again, was to be fairly practical, the idea of troubleshooting Agile was to help talk about symptoms that people might see and then talk about how you could troubleshoot the problems and what you might do to solve them. In my career, I've done most jobs you can do in a software company. (laughs) You know, everything from technical support and QA and development and engineering manager, product manager, product owner, you know, VP of development, VP of 
product management, CTO, managing director. The only thing I haven't really done is, you know, have a quota as a salesperson, but I've done sales engineering and sales support and all evangelism, marketing, all that kind of stuff. And Squirrel is a very active technical, I used to say consulting CTO, but he really does a lot more than that now. He really specializes in helping, as he would say, software teams become wildly profitable. And he works very intensely with software teams and software companies to make radical changes in their productivity in a matter of weeks. So that's the background. He's worked with hundreds of companies. I've worked with uh, fewer, but a long period of time, I've had exposure to lots of companies, partly through GitCon and partially through my roles at different tool companies. So we bring a lot of experience in having seen a lot of different scenarios and bring that then to discussion in our podcast. So it doesn't tie directly to the book in that sense, although there's a lot of commonality. There's conversations you need to be happening often come up. <laughs> so it's less intense. It's more than what you get in the book, but there's some overlap. Great. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. We'll make sure to link to KitCon, Agile Conversations, your book, and the podcast. Some great material there, for sure. Thank you again. Good luck. Thank you, Darko.